0: This is The New Disruptors, a podcast that looks into how creative people unshackle themselves from traditional means of reaching audiences and collaborators. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. On this episode, I talk with Jim Foodall. Jim runs a small design group in Chicago that crafts all sorts of things. A decade ago, they mostly practiced their art for other people. Then Jim decided to explore what he and his partners could do on their own. It's been a remarkable 10 years for them. You may know Jim best for his role in field notes, snifty notebooks that harken to the past, but fill a bizarrely empty niche for portable note-taking. Jim also hosts Layer Tennis, a battle of the Photoshop stars, and his firm operates The Deck, an ad network that reaches creative people in all sorts of media. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Glenn. Nice to have you on the show. I feel like pretty much everything you do touches some aspect of what I hope to do with the podcast and talking about breaking down these barriers between yourself and... And audiences. So, so you had Kudal Partners was originally more of a traditional client-facing firm. We were
1: a pretty typical advertising and design consultancy for quite a while. We did advertising, television, and built websites, radio commercials, logos, naming for sports and entertainment companies and national financial firms. Pretty, pretty typical design shop, basically. But we, at a certain point decided that as we were growing, we were increasingly doing work we weren't proud of for people we didn't like. And so we made a conscious effort. During this period, we had launched kudal.com, our studio site. There was a lot less competition, I guess, for link blogs and the like on the web back then. And, but we were, and we had a pretty big audience that was coming every day. And we were doing funny things like making films and doing contests. And you mentioned layer tennis at that point, it was called Photoshop tennis. and so. We sort of figured these people in some way must be like us. There's no reason under the sun for them to be coming to our site every day and reading what we're posting if they weren't in some way like us. So we just took the step from there to say, let's build things that we need or that we want. And let's just take it on faith that the people who are following along with us will need or want them too. Through lots of fits and starts and some successful and retired businesses and some unsuccessful and uh, completely crashed businesses, we sort of found our way to get rid of our clients and use the skills that we had developed as a design firm, typography and film editing and writing and print production and Web coding and use all those skills uh, on behalf of our own effort, as, a, as opposed to on behalf of other people's
0: product. That seems like such a you know radical idea in some ways that you could actually use your own skills for yourself. But but <laughs> but in the in the creative world it is right where a lot of us are beholden as creative people we're beholden to some kind of other party. We have clients or something that stands between us and the work.
1: Yes, definitely. And there's two things I'll say about that. One thing is we did this Photoshop tennis thing, and we don't. I don't want to go into the whole layer tennis thing, we could spend the whole podcast talking about the madness that that is. But one thing that was interesting about it, and I think the reason that it was so popular is that it really showed that because in our lives as designers, we competed all the time with other design firms for a piece of business, or we competed with another product in the category we were advertising for, but we never ever competed one-on-one and we never ever, ever competed live in public and i think that that sort of is an example of the fact that the work that we do in the work for hire situation is behind so many walls of clients and account executives and everything else that in some way it we lose we lose control of it and the not effect of that i think many times is doing work that's compromised or that's busy work or that isn't satisfying in some other way in 2006, Jason Fried from 37 Signals and I gave the keynote at South by Southwest Interactive, and we very much talked about this issue. And in 2006, it did seem sort of radical, but I, I might, I might sort of beg to differ with you now is that I don't think I know anybody who isn't, doesn't have some project going outside of their regular job or has left the regular job to pursue their own sort of thing. It seems like this is more the mainstream now or at least among the people that I deal with. I don't know. You were doing a whole podcast about it. There must be some of it going on.
0: Well, that's what I feel like something broke in the last few years in like a great way that there was not a log jam, but there were more impediments in people's ways to doing that sort of thing. Like finding an audience became enormously easier when the web was developed because you could just post things and reach people and then post video and then have real interaction and all that. But it feels like there were other factors in, in place. I look at things like the payment, part of it, the fundraising part of it, the um, production part. I think that plays a great part into field notes is all of the pieces that would have prevented you from making these notebooks and selling them. You could have done that 10 years ago. I know that goes back a few years too, but it seems like many of the factors that led for that to be something that was an, a relatively easy business to set up uh, in more recent years would have been all harder, say a decade ago, or even five years ago, that there's a... Acceleration of being able to reach the audience at the same time. It's easier to collect money at the same time. It's easier to manufacture prototypes and ship but things. I don't out. think there's
1: any question about it. I mean, I think there was a time when there'd be a big company in the creative department would be in the back corner of the office, and everybody would say, oh, "That's those creative guys back there." But the when things change with the web and people developing software on the web that you could use for accounting or for print production or for shipping or for calculating taxes or for uh, marketing and advertising, all of a sudden, all these departments that in the past would have been in a big company can all be actually run by the people who are making the things. Like, uh, you know, we, at Kudal Partners, there's only seven of us and there's no accounting department and there's no marketing department and there's no retail relations department. The sort of day-to-day business things are much easier today to handle. That doesn't mean that starting a business is easy, but it means that the part of it that was kind of the heavy sledding the slogging is uh, much easier to deal with whether whether it has to do with transactional things for payments or whether it has to do with figuring out what the best way to ship to oslo norway is you know all of those things are when somebody learns something once there's no reason for the next person to have to learn it again and i think the web makes it easy to figure to to sort of access a world of information put it to use for your product the two things that are preoccupying us right now are field notes and the deck and the interesting thing about that is that the field notes is decidedly and completely and deliciously analog and the (laughs) deck is uh entirely digital and so it's it is sort of it is sort of interesting it it was not by plan but uh it's quite satisfying to uh have uh, one business in each camp it's sort of interesting how they how similar they can be and how different they can be
0: well i think those are great examples uh at sort of two other ends of a spectrum too which is that field notes is a product you sell it's a way that you help make that transition i know it's one of i know you started with the cd um jewel cases was earlier but field notes the revenue from that and the success of that helped you make that transition from a client-oriented business to a self-project oriented business. But it feels like the deck is a tool then, not only do you realize revenue from it, but you've now facilitated people like John Gruber and um, Jeffrey uh, uh, Zeldman and uh, a number of other sites that are in your deck network that are people who by themselves might not have been able to create the kind of advertising and sponsorship opportunities. And these are designing creative professionals, uh, some of them writers or, or all of them, I guess, writers to some extent. But now they've been facilitated by the deck into their own careers in which they get to disintermediate themselves from having clients from or having many clients or from having to appeal to a specific need instead of reaching a broad audience.
1: Yeah, I, that's absolutely true. and And that was sort of the idea of the deck is that we figured if we could kind of reinvent the display, sponsorship, patronage, advertising model so that it actually served all three people involved. We could probably make something work. And by the three people involved, I mean the, the, the reader uh who would be reading a list who reads a list apart and because a list apart is getting advertising money they can produce more articles and make more content and the publisher who can be fairly uh, compensated for their work and and no less important the advertiser to actually be able to run an ad that's truly relevant to the audience that's reading the site is a powerful thing so uh, I, I i think that's true and and an added benefit is we get to advertise field notes on the deck and that works too so you know, that's actually where the deck came from. Is not necessarily with Field Notes, but we started the deck because we were having a hard time finding an advertising vehicle for <laughs> some of our products. So it is all sort of serendipitous, I guess.
0: Well, let me back up to before Field Notes, then, where you know you were in a position where you're doing work for other people. Clearly, I mean, I think this is a part that doesn't get emphasized enough. I think when we when you talk about changing careers or disintermediation or any of these things. You look at Kickstarter, for instance, and look at the tens of thousands of projects going through there. You knew you did good work. Other people, you know, you'd you affirmation you're doing good work because people would hire you to do your work. You have to start from a position where you are competent, you're a professional uh, or a gifted amateur in some forms of work, and you're not going to this field blindly, not saying, I don't know anything about what I'm doing, but I would rather be able to reach people directly. You're saying, You had this viable business. I know that you had a tough time when um, September 11th hit and clients and the economy as a whole, um, you know, dried up about a bunch, but you were coming from a position of strength. You said, I know what I'm doing. I've got a vision. My firm has a vision. What do we do to get out of that rut we're in? Let's make a change. How did you pull the trigger and say, let's start doing stuff on our own? I don't think it was that difficult.
1: You know, we made the decision. We said that. Either we can rebuild this design advertising firm to what it was by chasing clients to do projects that we're not excited about, or we can try another way. And the other way for us was, like I said, we had this audience, we had some ideas about things we could do. And we said without any real plan at all that within 18 months, we wanted 50% of our revenue to come from things we controlled as opposed to jobs we had taken. And then we went back to work on the annual report and the TV commercial for the local hockey team. But once we sort of made that commitment to ourselves, all of a sudden it didn't seem so daunting because maybe in the advertising and design business, it's easier, but we had maybe a portfolio of 10 regular clients and some of them we liked and some of them we didn't like as well. And some of them were generous and some of them were not. So as we added small projects that took up our time and generated some revenue, we could delete clients. So we never threw a switch, Glenn. It was never like, today we're a design firm and tomorrow we're entrepreneurs. It took us a long time, but eventually we ran out of clients to fire because we had started <laughs> taking up all of our time doing our right. own thing. So, um, you know, I... Looking back on it, it seems like that was a pretty good plan, but I'd be lying to say if if I said that we actually had a plan for doing it. You know, things, things never actually turn out the way that you think. And as long as you're open to the way they are turning out, you'll be okay. You know, I sort of suggest getting started not knowing what the hell you're doing because that way you don't get sort of scared of the reality. Ignorance is bliss in some ways. So we did know how to typeset and produce a book and we did know how to do a large print run and we did know how to build a website and we did know how to attract an audience and we did know how to edit videotape and you know so I mean we did have certain skills certain package of skills and crafts that we developed and we, we figured we knew what we were doing even if we didn't know what it was we were doing
0: you know it's funny as you described that I realized I started doing this thing in the 1990s I've been freelancing since about 96 or so, 97, and I had a mental list of all the stuff that I was doing to make money. And because I'm a freelancer, I was working on conferences, I was writing for different publications, I was doing programming work, and I'd kind of had it loosely ordered in my head from things I like to do to things I didn't like to do. And there was kind of a line in the middle, like the stuff I didn't like to do was below it. And over time, I kept taking things off that were at the bottom of the list. And I wound up after not that many years with only things above that line. Everything on my list was stuff I wanted to do. And some of it, I like to do a little less than others, but all of it I wanted to do. And it feels like, as you describe what you were doing with your website, even before you made this transition, that these were all things you wanted to do. you were putting on your website. These were all fun, interesting, creative, challenging projects or, or themes. And you got a great response because you were doing what you loved. You shared it. You had this way to reach a broad audience of similar creative professionals who looked at it and said, God, we identify with this because they love what they're doing and this is terrific. And then you took that and built on what you knew you could do and what was getting a response? And that was that stuff above that line, the stuff you wanted to do.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's, that says it perfectly, you know, and then eventually you can move the line up a little bit, you know,
0: <laughs> that's right. Well, then there's the other line is the lucrative. It's like, now how much money do you make versus how much you like it? So I've got items that are, I love doing this and it doesn't pay very well. And this is fun. I enjoy it, but boy, this is the best money I'm making.
1: Well, right. We used to say all the time that we used to say that we will do an exciting, challenging, Amazing project for a little bit of money. And we will do a mediocre, not so exciting, but competent professional project for a ton of money. But the one (laughs) thing we won't do is a boring project for a little money. So so that, that was how we used to justify it. We used to say, Oh, do we really want to take this project? And then we would, we had this formula where we would figure out what we were going to charge for the project. And if we didn't really want the project, the formula was um, multipl- multiply by two and add 10%. So mm-hmm. if we would take whatever we thought was a fair price for it. We would multiply it by two and add 10%. And then we would hope that the client wouldn't accept the estimate. And then if they did accept it, at least then we were getting paid more than we thought it was worth. <laughs> so
0: I think that's a great pricing strategy. You can
1: re- pretty much apply it to anything. So and, and there's something about adding the 10% that makes it seem sort of official.
0: That's right. That's right. It's a markup over, it's like the distaste markup. But you know, and the thing is the people who are hiring you, they don't think their projects are, most of them don't think their projects are horrible, but it's that there's a, the things you probably like least are the ones where they're, the people who are proposing them are least well actualizing their own work that they haven't figured out what they should be doing as a company or an industry or what have you. And they're bringing you crud that they want done because it's not interesting to anybody.
1: That's right. And Having to compromise on a big project when you know it's wrong and to go back and forth and back and forth over time till the very end of this huge project, you look at the finished product and you don't even want to show it to anybody, that'll just eat your soul. (laughs) That, I mean, that is that. And when I say that line, when I speak to people, everybody is nodding. Every single person in the audience nods. And they all are thinking about that one goddamn project that they did that started out with such enthusiasm and ended in such abject sadness at the end result. So, you know, now we sort of, when we do something wrong, when we do something poorly, it really hurts because nobody made us do it poorly.
0: I just had this conversation. I'm nodding here. You can't see me, but I'm nodding as well. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine who was talking about a project that uh, was, that's actually reasonably lucrative versus time. And he's absolutely, he could do it. He's very qualified for it, but he's not interested in it at all. And I said, you know what happens. You know what happens when you do that, because I do the same thing. If you take on a project that you find uninteresting, you will not do it well and you will not earn that fee and you may walk away from it. It's like, why even walk down that path if you don't have to?
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. We, you know, the other thing that we've learned over the last few years is that we spent a long time uh, making decisions against, against our better judgment mm-hmm. and every single time we regretted it. And so now we tend to trust our instinct more than we ever did. And, you know, that sounds sort of maybe silly or self-helpy, but that is a great confidence to have to say, no, I don't want to do that you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not sure why, but it doesn't feel right. So I'm not going to do it.
0: It is. And if you have the choice to not do it, I think that's one of the things that I'm fascinated by. It's not, I, you know, I don't want to call it the new economy because we're still in the current economy, but it's the the way in which you can get things to scale and profitability in a in a time frame and with lower expenses. I mean, that's such a long way to, to say it, but it's that you can say that my better judgment says I shouldn't do this. So I shouldn't, I should put my effort into this other thing that I want to do. And that I know has good outcomes too, or has the potential for very good outcomes. Let's talk about field notes. Cause I think that's where that fits in really neatly. Right. But I know you had come up before this with a really interesting CD jewel casing uh, product where you licensed uh, some technology, you made something so people could produce these really rich jewel case Liners. Yeah, it's called
1: jewel boxing. It's still in business. I don't know who is yeah. still, people are still buying the product. I don't know what. I know the,
0: the market has dropped there, but at the time you came up with that and you developed that, that was still, you were, we were on the arc of not that CDs were being sold at higher quantities, more like there was still a massive market for that. People were burning discs and, you know, both audio and whatever, but that had a certain arc to it. But field notes is a kind of very different thing. I, was, I remember when I first saw it and I thought, are these guys kidding like doesn't this exist and i realized no it it doesn't exist there was nothing quite like what you were doing it felt like something from a high
1: compliment i mean <laughs> when say, i must have seen this somewhere before that's like exactly right you know that's like i always think about somebody who first heard a song from the band like the first time they heard the weight or the night they drove old dixie down like the minute you heard it you thought like well this song must have been around forever that's sort of what we're going after after field so we did feel like there was room for this thing. The beginning story of it is exactly that our, my great friend and our partner in field notes, Aaron Traplin, who's now in Portland made these little field notes um, very similar to our basic product as a, he made them himself by hand and, and sent them out to some of his friends as a, like a holiday gift. It's a silly holiday gift and I got it in the mail. And I opened it up and I took one look at it and I called Aaron and I said, We have to start a business. <laughs> and Aaron said, Okay. And two weeks That's later, great. FieldNotesBrand.com uh was set up and as soon as we could get off the presses with a run of a thousand, we started selling them. And on the first day, we made 13 sales. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, sometimes you just know it's it's right, you know, and Aaron's a terrific designer with a great sense for american heritage design and we are all about paper and printing and letterpress and all of that and it just was like it was meant to be in some way
0: I feel, I'm obliged to say this in every podcast because it comes up in some aspect, but I was trained as a typesetter. I'm only 44, but I was, I was one of the last, I think one of the last people in my generation trained. I used an optical digital, not, I came to a uh, letterpress later. I've, I've had my hands on linotypes and monotypes in, the, in just the last few years, weirdly enough. And there's that connection with the real that we don't get digitally. There's that thing where we're constantly striving to have something real in our lives. And you look at field notes and field notes has an aesthetic. That's both very modern and precise and clean that you can get today. You know, it's this very precise product, but it feels like something created in the 1930s that was in a box Locked away somewhere with the Ark of the Covenant or something. They cracked open the box. You're like, Oh, this is that thing I was looking for. I didn't know I was looking for it, but now that it is in my hand, it fits there correctly. It's the weight, the half, the size, the smell. And that's a, So you cause something to come into existence that has a sense of inevitability. You're talking about like, uh, it, it, it should have always existed and now it does. Right.
1: And you know, and on top of that, it's not precious. It's yeah. utilitarian. Like, you can, you can pull out your field notes and write down milk, eggs, vodka. You don't, you know, your shopping list. It doesn't make any, you know, you don't have to write an ode to a Grecian urn in there. You know what I mean? It's not, mm-hmm. it's a very practical thing. It's decidedly analog in that, you know, people are always like, oh, you should make an iPad app for field notes. And we're like, what? You can't do that. It's, it's bad enough we have to have a website for it. And we have a rule in our marketing for it is that only nonfiction. So we make tons of films. Field we love doing it, but only not. Right. So we can only do a documentary or we can only do filming something that's real. We can't have happy grandpa in the uh, workshop writing down his hardware shopping list, you know, unless it really is a happy grandpa in his workshop writing down his his shopping list. We have no reason to make that ruling, except that once we did it, I guess like they would say, constraints are the things that make you do good work. And I think once we made that sort of no fiction, no digital field notes, it's sort of been a lot of fun to go from thing to thing with the brand.
0: That's your Dogma 95, the Lars von Trier thing. That's why Wi-Fi works well. It's constraints. You have a tiny little bit of spectrum. That's why design competitions work well. That's why layer tennis works well as you impose constraints. Now, one of the constraints you imposed, I'm fascinated by, and I think it's core into what we're talking about on the podcast too, is that everything's made in the United States. That's, that's a, was that a, was that a challenge or was that, Hey, we can do, let's do this. Let's just do this. No,
1: yeah, it was more the latter. It was, there was never any question about whether that was going to be part of field notes. I mean, the whole thing comes out of Aaron has this collection. There's a film at the field notes site. Aaron has this collection of the sort of forefathers of field notes. These are, Seed companies and fence companies and tractor companies were giving farmers all across America through the first part of the ni- to 1900 to about 1950, were giving out these little notebooks as promotional items. And they were for the Funk Seed Company or for the John Deere Tractor Company or any of the thousands of other uh, brands that were marketing to rural America. And that's where Field Notes comes from. And that's what the look is. And that's what it feels like. So there was never any question that we were going to source everything in the United States. Now, all of our printed materials are done. Even the most recent edition, and we do these seasonal editions, which are a ton of fun because we get it's like having four delicious new projects every year. <laughs> the last one we did on synthetic paper that's made in, I think, Hampton Roads, Virginia. And that was always about that. We didn't really think of it as a marketing thing. And we were a little bit ahead of this whole artisanal flannel shirt maker thing, you know, like there's so many men's shops and fashion shops now and field notes is in most of them that are really concentrating on well-made American made goods um, generally about men's fashion, but about other things as well. We were even a little bit ahead of that. Um, and it wasn't a decision that was made in response to Way this is going to help us market them, but this was a decision that was made because we wanted, like you said, the field notes are what they are. We we don't we can't pretend they're something that they're not. So they have to be made in the United States.
0: It's funny because it seems like you skirt that line between it being you know you're using this great classic typeface. I love Futura and I love the look of it, but it's also it's got this very strong sense of authenticity and uh, historic past and nostalgia. And there's that hipster thing, right? It's that people associate certain kinds of things with hipsterism. But the thing about hipsterism, and the reason you can sort of call people out for it, is that it's a lack of utility, not extra utility. These are utilitarian, even though the design says a lot of other things. You're telling a lot of stories with it, but I can use it. And I feel like there's the, the idea of hipsterism is you're copying uh, an attitude and an aesthetic without actually being part of it or being, or being useful to you.
1: And I would say in further defense of Field Notes is that it's uh, just as valuable to a guy in a pork pie hat with a three-day growth (laughs) of beard in Williamsburg, Brooklyn coffee shop as it is to two guys the third day at fish camp in a shanty on Lake Superior. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't – Field Notes doesn't care who's using it. You know what I mean? That's right. It's practical. That's that's. I mean, that's the thing. And if you look at our list of retail locations, we're in – really sweet design shops and museum shops and men's fashion shops in LA, but we're also in Red's Barbershop in Indiana and we are in bait shops in uh, the Northwest. So I'm mean, kind of lucky, I guess that way, but maybe not lucky. It's more that it like, I know it's I keep saying it, but it is what it is. You know, we're, we're not trying to be something that it isn't.
0: That was Apple's great success. I think it has been um, since Steve Jobs' Uh, when he returned is that they made products that anyone could use just like that, where I was stunned. I always thought the iPod, for instance, would run out of cachet and there'd be this point at which, uh, you know, you couldn't have a 90 year old grandpa and a nine year old and a 19 year old all use it and it'd still be cool. And somehow it still is. You, and that's the thing. Field Notes has that same feel that it doesn't adhere to a particular time. It's not, it doesn't become old fashioned, even though it has a historic feel. To it, it, it's like you're delving into the the past, like our collective American memory, to come up with something that feels like it's of the time, but it's not. It's, it's useful and it's not fussy either. It's useful for everybody.
1: Yeah, I like I, I, definitely not fussy. I like, and our most recent edition is a interesting example of that because it's super high tech material you know, that are only were only available within the last few years. These this synthetic paper that's virtually Unterrible and waterproof and bulletproof and temperature proof, you know? Um, and yet it's in the form of the field notes memo book, which is, you know, as you said, sort of comes out of the past. So the process of coming up with the, maybe we could talk for a second about the business model of field notes yeah. is that we, we sell them online and we sell zillions of them directly to consumers online. And we are in about 800 stores throughout the world now. So that's a very traditional sort of distribution model, direct to the consumers and direct to, um, stores. And, but aside from that, um, we came up with this idea of subscriptions where four times a year we do a limited edition and generally it's a new kind of paper, it's a new color, it's a new printing process or whatever. And we do them in, uh, limited editions and offer them for sale to our mail list first. And many times they sell out to our mail list before they ever offer to the public. And, People can subscribe, so you can buy the current edition and the next three, so you don't have to ride the the button to try to make sure you get your copy of the next limited editions for the season. And um, that was an accident, too. In fact, we just finished shooting a film here where we were walking through all of the different editions, uh, for Field Notes nerds only. But <laughs> But the thing that's interesting about that, we didn't realize what we were doing, but it, it does a couple of things. First of all, it is immensely satisfying to have to have a deadline. When you don't have clients anymore, it's easy to slip out of the deadline mode. And now we have these hard and fast deadlines four times a year that we have to come up with something great four times a year. And then secondly, it gives us a really great reason to communicate with our customers four times a year that doesn't seem spammy and doesn't seem like a free shipping sale. And here's the new addition. We'll announce it to the world tomorrow but since you're our pal you can buy it today and we've learned an awful lot about vintage and modern printing techniques and papers and inks and everything else so the season we're on it we just the last one we did was our 17th one and so that it's been it's been a lot of fun yeah, to do
0: those well, And that's a fascinating model, too, because who would have thought about subscribing to empty notebooks before because where would you find that audience? I mean, how much money would you spend think about in two thousand in the year two thousand I used to be involved tangentially with with um, direct mail marketing for conferences and and some other things and like When you say that, in my head, I flash back 13 years and I think, oh my God, like you'd have to buy – okay, so you'd have to buy you know, a million names. Where would you get them through? You'd be going to print magazine. You'd be working with list brokers. You'd assemble that. You'd spend this much money so your budget's like $150,000 in order to get a blah, blah, you know, and that's crazy. You don't have to do anything like that
1: anymore. Yeah, no, and it's the – people on our list are loyal and they, they're they're along for the, you know, like with most things that we've done, we've tried to be pretty open about what we're doing because we think that people sort of like to see behind the curtain a little bit and see what's going on. So with our loyal customers on the list, we're just straightforward and saying, here's what we're doing. Here's how many we're making and they're available now. And I don't know, maybe it's that I hate the word transparency. It seems like it's everywhere in these days. But maybe it's seeing through to what we're doing, and hopefully that we're being, you know, we're we're being honest about what we're doing with these editions. Um, gets people excited about being a part of it. We didn't have any idea that there would be so many completists out there. Like there's like a secondary market for some of these now, and like we never ever ever thought that was going to happen. That like people are trading them and, you know, they're listing them. The rare ones are on eBay at inflated prices. And-
0: well, you know, there's that, uh, what is it, rule 35 is that um, anything that you can think of that would be pornography would be made on the Internet. It's um, uh, And I think there's like rule 36, which is that any topic you can think of. There's going to be a niche that is actually surprisingly larger than you would have imagined for it because you're reaching – if you have a billion people and, you know, some hundreds of millions of people alone just speak English, you need a tenth of 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 a tenth. Of a tenth, of a tenth. And that still winds up being like 20,000 people when you get down to that number. But that, I think that's part of it too is the sustainable size of a business. I just wrote something about Pinboard Co-Prosperity Investment Cloud if you saw that. There's a little bit of a joke as this guy runs Pinboard, his bookmarking site, and he came up with this little bit of a joke because his whole thing has been to make modest businesses that are profitable and that run well. It's just him at this company. He has a decent revenue flow. He charges for everything. There's no free flavor for this service. Uh, he was going to pick six people. He's going to do it soon with business proposals where they'll each get $37 because that'll cover six months of hosting and a cup of coffee. And (laughs) I love this idea. And then what's great is two venture capitalist firms were like, we love this idea. We're going to kick in $50 each for each winner. And just a wonderful little joke and, and and a bunch of other companies, hosting firms kicked in and said, we'll give a few months too because they're, they're trying to – what he was trying to promote as a concept and I think got a lot of attention about is this fact that you don't have to suddenly scale up to be uh, – either get massive investment or scale up to a business that's so enormously huge to be able to get that return that you can have modest businesses that do well and they do more than just well enough but they don't have to be runaway – successes on the order of a Facebook in that world, or and I don't know what the equivalent is in the physical world. What you're doing, you're, you know, not only do you have your completest, but you have a dedicated loyal following. You don't need 10 million people necessarily. I'm sure it'd be great. And you'd love to be able to scale to that, but your business model doesn't require 10 million regular customers.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to switch gears a little bit with the deck, we made a very conscious decision to grow it organically. And our,
0: our idea was
1: to grow the thing sold out. And I'm sure we left a lot of money on the table over the course of the last four years running the deck, but it's allowed everybody to sleep at night and we don't have to make hard decisions about ads that we don't want to accept or affiliates that we don't want to add. So I'm as ambitious as the next guy and I can't wait to see what happens with Field Notes. We had a monstrous fourth quarter and we have a lot of things cooking going forward but i'm just as interested in having it be a business that supports itself that is successful and satisfying for myself and for aaron and for the rest of the people who work on it so you know i don't know what our next thing is sometimes i worry that we're these two things are starting to get so big that there's you know there's no more room on the stove to start another pot that's the you know that's kind of worrisome but
0: Right, because you're only one person, and that's, that's the limit of if you want to have – unless you want to become a giant conglomerate, if you want to keep your fingers in everything. Um, I've got a friend who's a pastry chef in Seattle, and um, he went through um, a bunch of the best restaurants in Seattle, worked um, at them, and they decided what he really wanted to do is run his own shop. And he opened a small neighborhood shop, and because everyone in town loves him, he got an enormous amount of advanced publicity, and he sells out at about 9 or 9.30 a.m. every morning. And he can't scale because he wants his hands on everything with yeast in it. At least he wants to touch every croissant that he makes. And it seems
1: that whole yeast thing, right? He's got to find somebody who can make the croissants eighty percent as good as he can,
0: right? But and can he you find want- somebody? He wants them 100% yeah, percent as good, yeah, yeah. And is there, you know, is there, is there eighty percent Jim Kudal? <laughs> I, I, I
1: totally identify with that, you know. But I, that's not to say that I'm a micromanager either. Like I, I think we all have different skills here, and. Sometimes, like generally when we do a new field notes release, we do a fairly ambitious film project. And many times um, I don't see it till it's done. So I think that there is a lot to be said for having people who are as into the project as you are and then letting them run with it. So, I mean, we've been the main staff here has been together for a long time. We know each other and we trust each other. We maybe it's an exception to the rule. It's a lot more fun. When you don't have a boss, you know, I mean, it's it's the same thing if I'm going to do if we're going to change this firm from a client serving firm to one that we have control of the next logical thing is that the employees feel the same way that they have control over the projects that they're doing, you know, otherwise, they're just trading their clients for me and that doesn't do any good.
0: It, that's a, and that's a great thing too is that a lot of the well not just the folks I've talked to but I think a lot of the sort of disruption involves very small firms um, because and, and sometimes one or two people with a very similar mission or sometimes uh, in your situation where you're leveraging the amount of outsourcing you could do customer you know you may not need customer resource management tools but you need you know you are using salesforce.com for some things because it helps or the, the accounting all the pieces that you used to have employees for it lets you have a 50 person firm with seven people and and, and that's a, a nice change, too. And then all those seven people are doing creative, interesting things instead of the scut work.
1: Yeah. But then we had the other eight people who were working hourly during fourth quarter trying to ship out the order. So,
0: <laughs> Good. You're increasing employment. That's great. Well, we did make.
1: Yeah, I know. I've thought about that. Like, you know, we, we weren't reflected in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but we did add staff during the holidays. The, You know, we made that decision a long time ago to handle the fulfillment ourselves, and we made it in sort of a casual way. And we've never made as casual a decision that it's had such a great impact because we've knocked out two walls and taken more space and built more oh shelves, bringing more people in. I don't know if that was the right decision to make, but we started down that road. So I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose we could easily take that off site to a, somebody else. But there's something about packing up Joe's order in Spokane that is, and, and make sure it gets to him that is part of the experience,
0: I guess. You know, what's weird though is every company I've, and person I've talked to who's doing projects, no matter what the scale, if it's in this kind of mold of taking control of it from start to finish, everyone's doing fulfillment. You know, every filmmaker's packaging up and sending out the DVDs. And, you know, sometimes there's a step they can't do. Like they have a house that, you know, uh that does all the printing and screening and whatever and delivers them something, but there is that desire to have hands-on, even when you reach the scale that you're at. And there's cost conservation too. If you're trying to keep every dollar and want to make every dollar count, then outsourcing that part is money that you're throwing away in exchange for the management overhead of doing it though.
1: Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is that we'll see. I mean, if we keep growing like we are we're going to have to figure out something so i never thought that it would be interesting to figure out an effective way to put together a database and shipping software system that interfaced with the ups and fedex and usps (laughs) and international i never thought and international customs regulations I i never thought that would be interesting but it It sort of is. The business part of the creative, the business process part of it has turned out to be surprisingly fun for myself and I think for everyone. And and it's interesting is that the deck where there's none of that, it's all, you know, we're just delivering ad impressions over the web. There are total similarities. There are inventory issues about maximizing the amount of revenue for a limited amount of inventory for the DAC at the same time that we're trying to figure out, well, how limited should this limited edition be so that we're sure to sell out in a couple of weeks, but that we don't sell out so quickly and leave all this money on the table. Mm-hmm. Those spreadsheets don't look that different. Like I said, you learn something once and you can apply it many times. I don't know, personally, as a guy who's a writer and an art director designer, I'm surprised at how much fun I've had while these businesses are growing, learning things that I never thought I would be interested in learning. So.
0: That is fascinating because a lot of those things are the picky and things that drive you crazy. But when you have total control over it, maybe that makes it more interesting that you can choose whatever direction you go. You're not constrained.
1: I love writing the email that goes out when we have a new edition, I, like a new seasonal edition. Like that's what? And and I'm a writer by trade and I, I like to write, but I I don't know why, but there's something about that Mail that goes out because when that mail goes out and it starts hitting, then people start buying the product. And so it's important that the communication is just exactly right and getting it in the right voice of, I got my voice, our voice, field notes voice. I don't know. There's parts of the, this business I never would have imagined that would become my favorite parts of going to work.
0: Speaking of voice, I want to talk about the deck just a little bit more because I think that's the least visible part of what you do. And the people aren't paying attention. To advertising on a lot of sites they go to, they're not going to notice the deck label. And, and you know, it's really about the advertiser. But I'm looking at, at decknetwork.net and I have it up in front of me and I realize I'm looking at the. Is that a joke that there's 52 sites? Does that just happen that it's, it's a deck? accidental, yeah. It's <laughs> accidental. That's a great little thing. But I'm looking through what's here they're in the Daring Fireball, obvious case. And I've, you know, reading John Gruber for many years, but I'm looking across this and it's like every site i could, swiss miss subtraction from uh, from koi uh j santa maria's site marco who i work for now marco.org mark arman uh, a list apart i know and five by five network i know those guys helvetica the film i could basically read down this into a laughing squid i could read down this entire list of 52 sites and say i think of all the sites that i know they're, they're all some of my favorite sites and then I look at the advertisers and I think oh these are all products I use BB edit a uh, black pixel and and their products you know Squarespace I know a lot about Parsons as the school like a combination of both sides are I realize that's kind of the audience that I the area I love, which is creative design, web, and so forth, interactive work. But it's fascinating to me that you... Yeah, you're the target. I, right? Yeah, I'm right in the... I, <laughs> I see a million of your ads. I'm a million of your ad impressions a month. But it is fascinating to me the the great confidence you have there. You wanted to build this up slowly. You were talking about earlier that you wanted to have this sold out all the time. Why sell it out? I
1: just didn't want to have to make a decision about whether I should take the um, weight loss ad when I was looking at losing money for a month. So, you know what I mean? So um, it started out, it was 37 signals and a list apart and Kudal. And that's how it started. And I think then a little bit later, we added John and uh, Andy bio and Jason and bit by bit, Jason Kotke and bit by bit, we added more and more sites and we added more and more ad slots to be sold and increased the price. And so, When it started, not everybody had ads on their site. In a way, when some people took the deck feed for the first time, they were nervous that the readers wouldn't like the fact that they had ads. That was maybe a more naive time. Um, It seemed logical to grow it sold out. We wanted it to be seen as a premium inventory for advertisers. And we also wanted it to work. And the dirty little secret about the deck is for the right advertiser, it's super powerful. And so we don't, much like Field Notes, I don't have to be in Walmart and Target to have a successful business. I don't necessarily need to take an ad for a a refi service, refinance your mortgage service, or you know what I mean? Like there's there are people who are like you, Glenn, and there are advertisers who have products that you are gonna like if only you would discover
0: them. I think I've bought from like about, Twenty five percent of the current advertisers I've bought at least something. It's pretty clear. Somebody once
1: <laughs> accused me of just starting a network from my bookmarks. And basically, <laughs> and basically I think that's sort of true. It's
0: so. not too far, but it's fascinating because uh, the kind of topics that I want to talk about on the podcast—they all have to do with this. It doesn't have to be the creative artist out in the wilderness by themselves. Collaboration, teamwork, facilitation are all part of it. And uh, you know, the deck is. For, for my money is one of the thin intermediators because you guys aren't greedy. I mean, I'm not saying you don't want to make money. It's not about that. Um, we had this great talk at the. Well, you were at the XO, XO conference. Right? I'm sorry I didn't meet you there, but I loved the purple covered field notes guides that I walked yeah, as away with. Yes. Oh no, really? Ah, I love. Oh I loved, no, I, loved, no, I got paused.
1: If you've ever seen, have you ever seen Aaron speak? Aaron does tall tales from a large man. He does this great speech about oh, how Aaron that. got to where he is. And if you ever have a chance to see him speak, you have to see him. He's fabulous. But he has one slide right in the middle of it that for no reason just says absolutely never use purple. So funny. I, so,
0: I love that color. I took, they had some left over at the end. So I've got piles of them here that my kids so we didn't and I why. are using. So
1: he, he, didn't, he didn't see him until he was sitting at the EXO
0: festival. Oh, it's awesome. But so you remember Dan Harmon, you can get this online. My listeners can get this online. If you go to the XO XO site and search for Dan Harmon, Dan gave this great talk. and He's the creator of the community TV show and then didn't get his contract remu- renewed for the last season because it was essentially the network didn't need him. And they made the cost decision, it sounds like, to hire people more cheaply to finish the show off for its final season. And and that's his contention. It sounds like it's pretty accurate. And his talk, I thought, was hilarious in general. But he kept coming down to this point, which was, it's not that it's not about money. It's that if you focus on the money part, everything else is going to be crap. If you focus on the part that is meaningful and you're a creative person with the skill and direction to do things, then it's not just that the money will follow, but it doesn't become the meaningful thing that makes you make decisions. And I feel like that is one of the aspects here is that the deck is, I I don't know your exact split with the the publishers, of course, but I know that you have a very, from what I hear from everybody, is that you have a very good split that when ad networks were started, they did not give, you know, their thing was, we're bringing you a lot of value. We're going to give you a piece of it. And, you know, I was on, um, with my Wi-Fi site, I was with with John Battelle's group with Federated Media. For and in fact, the site is dead, but I still have I still show ads on it from them. They started with Boing Boing, and they said we're not going to try to take the lion's share, and we're not going to give you crappy stuff. We're going to let you approve ads. We're only going to have high-quality advertisers, and we're going to give you a fair split. The deck seems in that same model like, say, um, the difference between Square for receiving a payment and PayPal, the approach they have, uh, the difference between Etsy and eBay for selling things, not just the kinds of things that are sold. The deck to me feels like what I keep calling a thin – Intermediator is that you're taking a piece and you're going to make money off volume, but you're not trying to maximize the piece you take from these publishers you work with.
1: The other thing is that we don't like to have to revise things all the time. So if we make a good deal, you know, if everybody is equally unhappy, we're in a good spot. You know, like I think that we. We want this to be an ongoing thing. We don't want to have to renegotiate things every five minutes. You know, what you said about Dan Harmon's thing is true. It's sort of like focusing, you know, if you focus on your score, if you're a golfer and you focus on your score instead of swinging, that's ridiculous. You should be focused on swinging the club. Obviously, it's a business. We're in business to be in business. For us, for the deck, is that we're trying to find the right balance between the three people sitting around the table you know the publisher the reader and the um, advertisers most of the people in the deck are making more money now than they were than when they started and we're selling more ads at a higher price so things are growing and going well for that and i think we've had a great deal of stability with it because i think we were looking at the long term when we started and are still looking at the
0: long term. It really shows, I think, when you look at the list of sites and you look at list of advertisers that that's the case, that it's, you wouldn't have these people. If also, I mean, you talk about egos and not to, not to either be offensive or underrate anybody on the deck member list of the publishers, but there are some real egos. Though. There are people with strong opinions in every topic, and you've got them all in one place. To be able to keep that group of people happy in the same network, I think it's a pretty profound thing.
1: Well, they all like each other, it seems like. So I think we have That's that true going, too.
0: So that's true too.
1: It's not rocket science. I think the thing. I mean if, I think the thing that made the deck difference is that we decided that the only algorithm that mattered for choosing advertisers and choosing affiliates was a human algorithm. And we decided that a truly relevant ad to the audience could only be achieved if we used our brain to decide what ads we wanted to take and what affiliates we wanted to add and so without being able to do it with programming there's no way for us to scale this up into some huge thing and we're okay with that we would rather have 50 or 60 really great sites and 33 really great advertisers and just move forward from there and see where it goes than then to risk taking an ad, you know, we, the, it's remarkable. We've had in the course of four years, we've had maybe four disputes about whether or not to take an ad. And in two or three of them, it was I was nervous about it. We we're all sort of on the same wavelength. And we have policies like if, we, if somebody wants to advertise on the deck and I'm not sure whether we should take the ad or not, I just randomly pick five of the members of the deck and force them onto an ad hoc committee to make a decision. And whatever they come up with, we go with. And That's so great. it's simple. It's simple. It's, 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 very simple to move forward there. Now, I'm sure that many of the affiliates wish they were making more money and I'm sure advertisers wish they were paying less money. And you know, like when we negotiate a deal, like the, like the guy said, if everybody, if both people are unhappy, it's probably a pretty good deal. So.
0: I was on AdSense uh, when it launched and thereabouts with my Wi-Fi site. And I watched over years, there's this amazing thing that happens with, uh, you know, it's a combination of arbitrage and perfect knowledge and networking. And boy, did I make a lot of money for a year or so off that with uh, hundreds of thousands of page views a month. And then even when the traffic, I mean, traffic went way down later, but even when the traffic remained the si- same, I saw that advertisers became disillusioned, the pan-up demand disappeared, the rates went down, and it just sort of petered out. And if you go to any of the people who were featured in early ads for Google AdSense as sites that were great proponents of and had changed what they were doing because Google AdSense existed, all of them are doing something else now. And that was the longevity there. You've been running the deck for years now, and it feels like it just gets bigger and richer over time.
1: Yeah, and well, and the other thing is that we don't make presentations, we don't make PDFs, we don't make charts, we don't visit ad agencies. We don't have very many statistics available. It's a very lo-fi operation, but um, at, on purpose. That's not how we want to run our life—is making presentations and sales pitches. Seven out of ten advertisers every month re up for the next month. So, <laughs> a
0: good, there's a good stat. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that,
1: I don't need you know these people are people people who look at the list of advertisers. Those are smart people. They're not re upping because they think that the deck site looks cool. People are getting value from it and. Again, it seems kind of naive to think, but there was a time when bloggers like Jason Kotke and Swiss Miss didn't have any ads on their site, and the deck was a way for them to put an ad on their site that they knew would be of high quality, that would be a guaranteed amount of revenue for them so they could concentrate on other things and allow them to do what they wanted to do, which is right and great posts and create great content and so it's still that way the, the and the rest of the online advertising world has gone to the dogs like breaking stories into 20 pages to get more page views and like we don't even care about you know traffic is obviously important to figure out the math of the whole thing but it's not the be all and end all for what the deck is about if you're a deck affiliate and you have a terrible month followed by a great month you're going to get paid the same amount each month we're not uh, slaves to CPM and because of that I think we allow the publishers to do what they do best we provide the readers with truly relevant ads most of the time to their interest. And to advertisers, we provide them with an uncluttered environment to reach savvy and curious consumers.
0: It's a good model too in that you're mostly sold out most of the time. So you can be as honest as you want about it. I mean, not that you wouldn't be honest, but you know what I mean? There doesn't have to be, there's no BS in the middle of this about advertising, which is often part of the advertising world because people are seeing results. You've got advertisers re-upping and they're re-upping because, you know, Mail, Mailchimp sells a product maybe at a a bare bones sells a product they know if they're getting results or not it's not an abstract thing that they're doing brand awareness they know if this translates into something that's real yeah Yeah.
1: i mean there is some there is some aspect to it of awareness you know i mean advertising one-on-one is awareness plus reach plus frequency there is a certain amount of brand awareness and some advertisers are going into it purely for that and other advertisers are going into it looking to specifically for return on investment and counting clicks and conversions. So the deck can serve either one of those advertisers pretty well, again, if it's the right product. Just because you can buy 2.6 million impressions from the deck for under $9,000 doesn't mean we're going to sell it to you. (laughs)
0: That's right. Curation is an incredibly important part of, I mean, I I know that word gets overused, but it's really that the art of actually using an aesthetic sense, commercial sense, and business judgment and ethics all in the same place to pick what you do. And that comes through very strongly. It comes through in layer tennis. It comes through in the deck. It comes through in field notes very, very strongly. Yeah.
1: I like to call it taste instead of curation.
0: Taste, that's right. Taste, but taste doesn't necessarily encompass the financial part. <laughs> I think that's the, like, curation has the tinge of money to it right. somehow. Yeah, I
1: guess maybe. I don't know. I know, you know, <laughs> it comes not. out of the museum world. I mean, we can talk about it's the true. museum of online museums, but, but the, it comes out of the museum world, which is seen as, rightly or wrongly, as sort of altruistic. So maybe, I think it is an overused term, but we don't have a better term, unfortunately.
0: There's, there's your next goal is come up for the term to replace curation. Thank you very much for talking about what you're working on. I think you're living a lot of people's dreams, which is doing interesting things that actually make a living and that are on a growth curve. That's pretty awesome. Yeah,
1: well, I don't know about that, but we're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the days that we have That's fun, course. we laugh a
0: lot. <laughs> That's good. Well, thanks for joining me, Jim. You're
1: welcome, Glenn. Thanks for having me.
0: This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash newdisruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at New Disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via new Disruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.